You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 30, Halloween, Part 2. Hello, hi. Oh, hi there. Welcome to Denver Orbit. This is the spookiest of all the spookcasts. Also, it's an audio magazine featuring scary voices, spooky stories, and creepy music from Colorado's ghouliest creative community. Yep, I'm sticking with that intro. That's the one. I'm committing to that one. Anyway, as you may have guessed, we're on episode two of our Halloween Scare-tacular. This is not a sequel. You don't have to go back and listen to last week's episode for context or anything. I mean, you should listen to last week's episode. You should be listening to the whole show, but then you should listen to this one, but you wouldn't be missing anything if you didn't listen to last week's show. Does that make sense? First, I'm not going to ask you to rate and review the show on your favorite app anymore. That's somewhat of a fool's errand, I think. So this is what you should do instead. Go right up to a friend or family member, or two, or three, and say, hey friend or family, don't say hey friend or family member, say like Bill, or well, I mean, you know what I mean, whatever their name is, say that. So then you say, hey friend or family member, you like stuff, you should listen to this stuff, and then show them the podcast, and that's it, that's all you have to do. And then buy yourself like 17 beers for a job well done. Okay, let's let's talk about today's show. As per last week, we have only two things, but just like last week, these are good things. We've got a smurfing great trick-or-treating story from Laura Bond, and then we've got the rather grisly tale of Alfred, or Alfred, Packer. Just one last thing before we begin, though. If you want to do a thing on this little program, uh, or you just need to contact us, because like maybe you lost your shoe or something, uh, you can write me at denverorbit at gmail.com. All right, that's enough of that. Here's Laura Bond. I don't know how old you were the first time your family dressed up like Smurfs and wandered your neighborhood asking for food. I was eight. It was Halloween in Phoenix, and there we were, my mom and dad, my 12-year-old brother and me, in the still bright light of dusk, our faces and hands thick with pancake blue makeup, moving from house to house. When each door opened, we hollered in unison, trick or treat, then watched with glee as lollipops and M&Ms, nerds and sweet tarts rained down into the pillowcases my brother and I carried, then dragged down the street. Smurfy very much, we'd say to neighbors we passed. Have a very Smurfy Halloween. We didn't break character until we got home and even then, after my mom and dad had changed back into jeans and jogging pants, My brother and I hung on, counting our loot in front of the TV. How many Smurfs did you get? I asked him. 56 Smurfs and 12 Smurfy Smurfs. I don't remember exactly how we got to that point, but it surely started with me and a breakfast cereal. Smurfberry Crunch with its red and blue balls of sugar that turned the milk in the cereal bowl paint water gray. On the box, Papa Smurf gazed confidently out from under the curl of his pointy cap spoon in hand, imploring you to join him in some crunchy goodness. That bowl felt like a portal into the magical forest where the Smurfs lived in houses made out of mushrooms. 
I told my parents all about this magical land over breakfast and in the car and on the way to school and after school and on weekends. Even though the Smurfs were not my primary obsession in 1983, that place of honor was reserved for Strawberry Shortcake, who also had a breakfast cereal. They did occupy an important place in my mind and heart. It started with scratch and sniff stickers, then progressed to figurines. I followed the adventures of Papa Smurf and Smurfette, the evil Gargamel and his cat, Azrael, every Saturday during marathon cartoon binges. My brother got in on it when we acquired a prized family possession, a ColecoVision game console that was a thoroughly 80s, very primitive precursor to Nintendo, which came a few years later. The first game my parents bought for us, you guessed it, was the Smurf game. It basically involved a bunch of blue dots being chased across a 2D landscape by a purple dot, which was supposed to be Gargamel. It was shitty, but it was new, and the first night we had it, my brother and I stayed up until 2 in the morning. That was pretty late for an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old, especially on a school night, but we just couldn't stop egging each other on. Just one more game, one more dopamine hit, which, come to think of it, pretty accurately presaged the way he and I would both spend our 20s. Anyway, it wasn't the first time my family wore matching outfits in public. The Halloween before, my dad, brother, and I embraced a super theme as Superman, Superboy, and Supergirl. My mom defected and went instead as Dolly Parton in the disco era. She wore a white polyester bodysuit and two water balloons as boobs. I didn't question any of this logic. If Superman were to step out on Lois Lane, Dolly seemed a natural choice. But this year, she was into it. Or maybe I just remember it that way because, of course, she did all the work. She drove around town collecting blue sweatshirts and white baseball pants for my dad and my brother, white dresses and shoes for her and for me. She used a Santa Claus hat as a pattern to sew four caps out of white felt. She found a wig of yellow yarn to complete my look as Smurfette. She sprayed my dad's then-brown beard white, transforming him into Papa Smurf and dyed silver the blonde wig she'd worn as Dolly. Presumably, she was playing the role of Papa Smurf's wife. Though we all knew no such character existed, we were not about to push it. Of course, we all wore tights. Blue tights. Now, these costumes would not have held up in the Pinterest era, but they were, in all their 80s glory, magnificent, especially in my eyes. As we stepped out of our front door and into the street, I did not see four people in thrift store garb. I saw four Smurfs out for a pleasant evening. I didn't see streaky blue makeup on our hands and faces. I saw skin, Smurf skin. We were real and now we were roaming the streets of our neighborhood, seen and admired by all. They of their off the rack, Walgreens pirate outfits and bedsheets cut with ghost holes. We were fucking Smurfs and we laughed and even skipped a little as we moved down Flynn Lane, blue hand in hand. In a photo from that night, I am jubilant a fully inhabited Smurfette, white teeth smeared with chocolate and framed in bright red lipstick. I had lived the ultimate childhood dream. I'd pulled my entire family fully, totally, and completely into my delusion. We had pretended together, fully committed to the same fantasy, even if only for one rapturous night. It was really Smurfing beautiful.
Laura Bond is a Denver writer who likes to make cool things with creative people. She's a member of Lighthouse Writers Workshop, a thrift store evangelist, and a recovering music journalist who has collaborated with Stratus Chamber Orchestra, Platform, and the Narrators, among others. Now, there are some places on the internet where Denver Orbit takes up valuable space, and I'm going to tell you all about where those places are. First, we've got a Facebook page. That's where we talk about the show, the episodes, uh, any upcoming events, of which, of course, there are none at the moment, and other creative happenings around this little town of ours. That's facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. And second, we've got an Instagram page. Yep, we sure do. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how do they have an Instagram page? Isn't this a podcast? Is this thing run by idiots? And mostly you'd be right. But if you want to look at weird, wonderful nonsense, then you should check it out. We're at Denver underscore Orbit. So, for our final segment, we've got fellow podcaster Laura Porritt. She brings us this tale from her own show called Color Red. And just a heads up, Alfred, or Alfred Packer, was a cannibal. And Laura talks about that in detail. So you can't say you weren't warned. Enjoy! In 1873, the Denver Tribune wrote a story about the San Juan Silver Mines, stating that their load surpassed that of the infamous Comstock in Nevada. And this story would end up being reprinted all across the Southwest. A young man at that point named Sam Clemens was smitten with silver fever and stated that we he would have been more or less a human if he hadn't gone mad like everyone else. And when he arrived here, he expected to find masses of silver lying about on the ground and glittering in the sun. And this man would later change his name to the more familiar Mark Twain. But the story today isn't about him. It's about a different man who was also um, living in Utah at the time and had his interest peaked with the silver in the San Juan Mountains. This man was named Alfred Packer. He was born in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania in um, 1842, and he was one of eight children. His father would end up moving the family to LaGrange, Indiana, shortly after Alfred was born. He would end up apprenticing as a leather worker. And one interesting thing is that Alfred Packer suffered from violent and frequent grand mal seizures, and there was no treatment at the time for this disease. In April of 1862, Alfred joined the 16th Regiment of the U.S. Infantry in Minnesota, and he attended a Union training camp where he was given a terrible tattoo that ended up identifying him as Alfred Packer, with his name spelled A-L-F-E-R-D, of the 2nd Battalion, 16th Infantry. And some historians end up blaming the tattooist, but others point to the fact that Alfred was nearly illiterate and possessed very low writing and spelling skills and could not even spell his own name. It would end up being the case that neither could really any of his siblings, especially one named Melissa, who would later write him in jail and misspell her own name as well. So. Alfred and Alfred are interchanged quite a lot on documents and stories up until this day and after. He was out of military by Christmas of that year. He ended up getting a medical discharge because the doctor wrote that he was unfit for duty. He enlisted again in the 8th Regiment of Iowa Cavalry, 
and would later lie that he spent time as a scout for General Custer, but in reality, again, he was discharged for epilepsy. After his salary was docked money um, for plundering the citizens of Nashville, whatever that might entail. So Alfred kind of had this reputation of being a bit of a liar. Packer would begin moving west, working with leather goods as a saddler, trapper, harness maker. He would work as a jack whacker, leading supplies um, up on mules, up and down the mountains for different miners. All of the men he worked with would remark how he could be useless for days because of his seizuring, and it was something that they ended up basically putting against him. He would end up losing parts of two left fingers in a mining accident near Breckenridge. In 1871, he made his way to Utah and he worked in mining and ended up getting lead poisoning and then moved um, east of Lake City here in Colorado to work at a smelters and got lead poisoning again. And he nearly died in that instance, but he ended up recovering. Upon his recovery in 1873, the San Juan Mountains' promise of silver was calling to him. And a man named Bob McGrew from Oregon was also eager to try his luck in the San Juan Mountains. Packer would end up wandering into his camp one night and offering his services to help him with the horses and serve as a guide if Packer went with him. On the 1st of November, 1873, the doomed expedition was ready. And this expedition was 19 men in all. One man named Preston Nutter felt that they were poorly provisioned. Assurances were made by Packer, and he claimed at this point to be an excellent guide and scout. He claimed it would only be 400 miles in 20 days time to their destination. Shortly into the expedition along the old Spanish trail, it became clear that Alfred Packer had no clue what he was doing. Members of the party were immediately annoyed with him. They were saying that he was sulky and obstinate and quarrelsome, that his voice was high-pitched and whiny, and that Packer was especially protective and whiny about food, often taking way more flour than he needed and then sneaking off with his bread to eat it in secret. So it wasn't long before they witnessed his seizuring and they considered him weak and useless. Bob McGrew would end up being his wagon buddy, and he was the only person in the whole group that actually ever defended Packer. He ended up pulling Packer out of a fire one night while he was seizuring and didn't even know that he was laying in the fire. So he would just basically lay in the wagon with Packer wrapped up in his arms to keep him safe while he was seizuring. The party continued on, and as time passed, dwindling food and no actual guide showing them where they were going led to a lot of mounting tensions. By January 25th, 1874, it was a full three months after they had set off, and a band of Indians surrounded them on the trail. Their ultimate name would be the Utes, and the chief of this tribe was named Yure. He had negotiated to relinquish land in exchange for guaranteed lack of disturbance from the white settlers. In addition, the tribe received $30,000 a year for supplies. The treaty signed then, basically afterwards, uh, white men began flooding into this area for silver, and the Utes then ceded again for four more million acres of their land, and the government gave them $25,000 more a year for this ceding of the land. One of the men surrounding the mining party was Yure. He's described in history as being incredibly hospitable. Once the men explained that they had no intention of settling in the area, Yure invited them to camp near their village to rest. 
men in the expedition began pooling their money to buy goods from the Indians. And within a week, the men were restless. And Uray advised against them from continuing on. But one group of men set out. And when Packer tried to follow, they threatened to actually shoot Packer because they didn't want him following them. This group of five men would be found again three weeks later when two stumbled out of the woods near starvation. They ended up finding a little cattle camp. These men would be rescued by the other men in the cattle camp, but the same could not be said for the group that left Ure's camp mere days after they did, and this time Alfred Packer was with them. Packer's group of six consisted of himself, the oldest man in the group, Israel Swan, was in his 60s. George Noon, who was the youngest man in the group, was 16. Frank Miller, a German butcher, Shannon Bell of Michigan, James Humphrey. McGrew ended up following with a companion of his, but ended up turning back, watching this group basically walk away to their fates in the mountains. Three months after this, in early April, a group of Ute women came upon a man camped by the Gunnison River, roasting meat over a fire. He saw them looking at him and he hurriedly tossed an item from his camp into the river. When the item was recovered by one of the women later, washed up on the bank, it was a human arm stripped of its flesh. So on April 16, 1874, men at the Los Pinos Indian Agency saw a man walking leisurely down the creek he looked shaggy and a little wild, but well-fed. This man was Alfred Packer, and only two hours after his lone arrival, the rest of the men who had been at Ure's camp made it to the agency, to the dismay of Packer. Preston Nutter, a man in this party, inquired about the other men, and Packer said that they left him behind. The combined party now set off for Sawatch, which was 45 miles away. In Sawatch, eyebrows were raised when Packer immediately began spending money. And this was especially odd since he was completely broke when they left Utah. In addition, he was spending money out of multiple wallets, and they said he spent about $100, which was about $2,000 in today's money. He was dismissive when questioned about the five other men. No one had seen them, and they hadn't arrived yet in Sawatch, so... Of the original expedition of the 19 men who left Utah, everyone had survived, with the exception of those five men. Tensions were running high in the town in relation to Packer. So on May 1st, 1874, the head of the Los Pinos Indian Agency named Charles Adams came to Sawatch out of curiosity for the expedition party, found out that Packer was spending lots of money, that he was throwing stuff into the stream. So people would watch Packer basically walk down to the stream and be throwing small items that they thought were maybe wallets of the men into the stream. And he was generally just being evasive about questions. He brought up the notion to Packer that men had been forced into rough situations in the mountains before, particularly situations when they had to resort to eating each other in order to survive. So through blubbering and tears, Packer gave his first account of what happened in those months between leaving them at Yuri's camp and him walking into the agency. He said that the men wandered through the snow and cold for about 10 days. They slowly began to realize that they had misjudged the time and their provision needs. The first to collapse from starvation was Israel Swan, the oldest man in the party, and he was stripped of his flesh for food. 
They trudged another four to five days through the snow, eating roots dug up from the ground, and James Humphrey collapsed at that point and died, and they stripped him as well. Packer left to find firewood one night and came back to see that two of the men had killed another named Frank Miller because he was slowing them down and his body ended up suffering the same fate as the others. After another few days, Bell shot the other companion, then turned on Packer and would smash his gun against a tree trying to get to him. Packer was then forced to shoot him in self-defense. Packer loaded up on meat from the bodies and made his way down towards the agency where the men would see him walking along towards the river towards them. A problem arose with this confession when a search party went looking for the bodies. The first party found only Packer's camp, which had apparently been inhabited for a while. There was no sign of a shattered gun or a single body, just a hole underneath a tree where Packer was sleeping. The discovery of the bodies themselves is a bit of a mystery in terms of who actually ended up finding them. One account says that they were discovered by a prospector named C.H. Graham, whose dog came back to his camp with the human leg bone in his mouth, and he found the bodies near each other, fleshless except for their heads. In another account, a man named John A. Randolph was in the mountains on an assignment from Harper's Weekly. On August 20th, 1874, he found a bunch of corpses underneath a steep bluff, and it looked like they had been struck in the head with a hatchet, and they were obviously very decayed and uh, what he described as a smelly mess. He drew an image of the scene, and it was published in the October 17th Harper's Weekly, and I do have this image, and I'll be putting it up on the Instagram for the show. Um, this area would come to be known as Dead Man's Gulch, and it's still known as that to this day. Finding the bodies together meant that Packer's story was false, and he was arrested and held in Sawatch. He was held there until two founders of the town basically came together and figured that holding him in the jail cell was a drain on their resources, and they actually helped him escape. Packer would end up wandering around Arizona, Nevada, Montana, and Wyoming for the next nine years before being caught. Once in custody, they took his formal portrait photograph and they made sure that his missing fingers were clearly visible and other details about him. Packer would go on to sell pocket sizes of this photograph to people for the rest of his life and to curiosity seekers. Packer was taken into custody to Union Station and they kept him in a room there while he gave his second confession. In his second confession, the men wandered around hungry, substanding on rosebuds and tree roots. One night, Packer left to scout the trail and came back to see one man crouched over a fire. There was a heavy snowstorm, so he couldn't see any other men as he approached this fire with this figure looming over it. It ended up being Shannon Bell. Bell lunged at him, and he shot him. Bell ended up falling forward, and then Packer plunged his hatchet into Bell's head. He slept next to the corpses for some time and eventually got to the point where he began cooking up their flesh in a tin cup that he had. He camped there for weeks, slipping in and out of lucidity and consciousness. And when the weather ended up clearing, he took their money and wandered off to the agency. Upon his arrest and second confession, interest peaked all around the country. Headlines like, Human Jerked Beef and The Fiend Who Became Very Corpulent on a Diet of Human Steaks were some of the headlines that were all across the country. A long list of unsolved homicides were speculated to have been committed by him. 
It seems almost any death within 500 miles of the San Juans was the fiendish work of Alfred Packer. Rumors spread that he would poison victims with morphine that he took for epilepsy, and that he lured men into the mountains just to kill them, and that he preferred eating human flesh to any other food. None of these stories and rumors were really that true, and none of them have been verified, but they would definitely not help Packer leading up to his trial, and neither did a change in Colorado laws, which would muddle the case further. In 1870, a law was passed which stated that a jury would decide whether or not a defendant would be put to death. This law backfired in a famous case of Filomino Galati after he murdered a partner in crime and two young boys and left their bodies stacked and rotting in a basement for months. Galati would end up pleading guilty, so his case was never determined by a jury, and he escaped the death penalty. After public uproar about this, the law was changed to say that you could be sentenced to death even when pleading guilty. Only, they didn't change the law to add a savings clause. So this essentially left an entire decade open without a technically standing law regarding the death penalty or murder. This happened to be the decade when Alfred Packer ate five men in the mountains. Packer's attorney would end up using this loophole in the law to try to get an acquittal later on, and he would use it to get a second trial. The first trial was an insanely popular event. Witnesses who took the stand would attest to Packer's money lust, his lying, his sensational and supposed attempts to poison people he was around. The prosecution focused essentially on the fact that Many other men in the mountains at that time did not starve, and that Packer's party was never in danger of starvation. They focused on Packer's inability to pin down how much food they had and uh, when they ran out of it. Something of vital importance to prove their situation was dire. This confusion ended up working out for the jury. The verdict was guilty of premeditated murder, and the sentence was death. The judge spared no words in passing this on, stating, Close your ears to the banishments of hope. Listen not to the flattering promises of life, but prepare for the dread certainty of death. Prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet the spirits of thy murdered victims. Prepare to meet thy aged mother and father, of whom you have spoken and who still love you as their dear boy. But as I said, the, the loophole in this law provided by the change in laws would overturn this conviction and grant Packer a new trial. And at this point, sympathizers for Packer were coming out. In 1886, the second trial began, and the testimonies were very much the same, but there was one exception, with more focus put on the theory that game and food was prevalent in the mountains and that Packer's party was not facing starvation. Packer was again found guilty, but this time of voluntary manslaughter in all five cases. The judge ended up giving him five consecutive terms of eight years, or 40 years total, and at the time, this was the longest term ever imposed by an American judge. Packer was shipped off to Canyon City Jail, where he received a steady stream of visitors and curiosity seekers. He got into woodworking and even built an elaborate Victorian dollhouse for the warden's daughter. A commission was called at one point when rumors of Packer's insanity were spreading, and several doctors were called in to testify to his sanity. He attempted several times to get parole, but he was denied every single time. And someone would come, always come out from his past who would basically say that he was insane and not worthy of parole. At one point, he gives a third confession in which he gives a similar account of the killing of Shannon Bell in self-defense, 
Only in this confession, he willfully admitted to eating the flesh of the deceased for sustenance and also admitted to robbing them, but he stated that he regretted robbing them. He also states that after the murder of Bell, his mind basically went blank for weeks and he just sort of existed in this snow hole in the mountains, thrashing from seizures, nearly dead, and barely subsisting on the flesh of his comrades. Packer would find salvation in an unusual way when a reporter from the Denver Post named Polly Pry began interviewing him and was immediately transfixed with his story. She began writing editorials in his defense and brought up a number of decent points. The first being that cannibalism from frontiersmen and seafarers wasn't exactly uncommon at the time, and it often went uninvestigated and was considered necessary for survival. The biggest case that everyone remembers being the Donner Party, where a man, one of the men in this party ended up killing a baby and eating its brains, and he was never actually charged with that crime at all. And the sensationalism about Packer's character doomed any chance he had at a fair trial. She also had the point that he had served his time for the defensive murder of Bell and of the stealing of the money, both of which he admitted to. She also said that much worse murderers who were caught in the act or even admitted to them had been paroled in the state of Colorado before Packer. Of course, her opinions were met with some backlash, but they were largely sympathized with, and to be honest, they were pretty good points. Um, Cannibalism wasn't exactly uncommon, and it did happen, and it would pretty much be ignored by most people. It would end up being an attempted murder involving Polly Pry that would end up freeing Packer. A man from the Denver Post went to interview Packer without approval from the editor, and he came back to Polly and two editors who confronted him about it. And at that point, he pulled out a gun and shot the two editors in front of Polly Pry. Packer would be brought in as a witness for this trial. At this trial, he kept everything under control and remained calm, and he ended up warming the hearts, if you will, of the people of Denver. And so on January 7th, 1901, James B. Orman, in his last day as governor, granted Alfred Packer his parole. Polly Pry herself would go to Canyon City to tell Packer the news, and he was overwhelmed with joy. Packer would end up moving to the town of Sheridan, where he lived in a frame wooden shack intended to his vegetable garden. He would end up dying only six years after his release from complications due to epilepsy, and he was buried in a cemetery here in Littleton, Colorado. But the legend of Alfred Packer endures. There's a hiking trail up to Dead Man's Gulch that people claim is haunted and where ghostly mists settle often. At one point, there was a mystic named Hamilton Rice. He ended up performing a ritual over the grave of Alfred Packer where he laid a black robe over a goat placed in front of the grave and put goat's blood on the grave and performed a ritual that supposedly transferred Packer's sins into the goat. Rumors were spread that Packer was actually a Harvard-educated dandy and a mass serial killer on the level of H.H. Holmes. Eventually, he ended up being made into a bit of a comical figure. Fan clubs erupted, a food court in University of Colorado Boulder was named after him, and Alfred Packer Day at the University of Colorado would come to feature a belch-off burping contest, a Packer look-alike contest, Drunken debauchery and t-shirts were sold with slogans like, if you can't beat them, eat them. In 1988, the investigation of bones to uncover their mysteries was reaching a fever pitch, and a man named James Stars 
launched an investigation where they went to the site where the victim's bodies supposedly were and tried to find them. They did end up finding them, and they found supposed evidence of cannibalism of the bones. Stars tried to claim that this was evidence that Packer was a murderer after all, but all it really proves is that the bodies themselves were cannibalized. By who, when, uh, it's hard to say. So the legend of Alfred Packer lives on, and what exactly happened in the mountains that day is up for anyone to decide. You can head up to Lake City and go to the museum up there, which holds many artifacts, including items made by Alfred Packer and many items from the investigation. You can hike the trail to see the memorial plaque for the five men who died in the mountains that winter. And you can buy a t-shirt with Alfred Packer on it. And a funny saying about eating your enemies or how he liked people and so do you, or how you can have a friend for dinner. If you're into true crime, check out Colored Red, a podcast all about the lesser-known murders and crimes in Colorado. Colored Red is written and produced locally by Laura Porritt, and you can find it on your favorite podcast app. And so we've come to the end of this episode, and of our Halloween stuff, as it turns out, but we'll be back with some non-Halloween things just for you. I've been your horse. I've been your horse? Yep. Also your host, Josh Madison. I produce this thing. And I'll see you again in two weeks, probably.